Again, welcome to Potomac Hills Presbyterian Church. Again, my name is Frank Wong. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, I am uh, mindful that we have a number of visitors um, and also a number of folks that are back home from college. So uh, for all of our college students that are uh, back home, um, please do uh, greet them. Uh, welcome them and uh, welcome them back and also ask how things are going so that you can be praying for them as they go back off to college. Um, as we also um, said uh, last week, you saw Dr. Silvanero get up and talk about giving. Uh, I would again remind you that Giving Tuesday is coming up on the 29th of November. Please do be praying uh, for uh, what you might give to the church. Um, but uh, after all of those announcements, let us uh, turn our attention to God's Word. We are finishing up our series in First and Second Peter and in Jude uh, this morning, <clears throat> uh, and it was entitled Embracing Exile as we sort of think about what it looks like to uh, go through life knowing that we are not citizens of this world. And uh, so this morning we have the short epistle of Jude, if you want to turn with your Bibles uh, turn in your Bibles with me. It's the next to last book in uh, the Bible. It's only 25 verses long, so it's easy to, to miss. Uh, find Revelation, which is the last book of the Bible. Turn back one page from Revelation 1, you will probably find Jude. So uh, please uh, pay attention uh, as this is God's word. I will read the whole book, which is only 25 verses, so uh, here it is. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God, uh, the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve an ex as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also relying on their dreams defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves waterless clouds swept along by the winds. Fruitless trees in late autumn twice dead, uprooted. Wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame. Wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. 
It was also about these that Enoch the seventh from Adam prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with tens that with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and convict all the ungodly of, their, of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouthed boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory, with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we come to this book uh, recognizing that there are false teachers in our midst. And Lord, as we examine this, we note that these false teachers do nothing but sin for their own selfish gain. And Lord, we are like that sometimes too. We sin because we want to. We sin because we want what we think is best. And so, Lord, open our eyes to our sin, but also to the greatness of your gospel, which has delivered us through your Son into glory, into sanctification, into holiness. And so, Lord, as we come uh, to this book, we are thankful that you call us out on our ungodliness, that we might turn from it and turn to you. So, Lord, help us see Jesus, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we uh, jump into our text this morning, Jude is one of those books that is often overlooked. <clears throat> I won't ask for a show of hands, but uh, I'll bet that some of you have never ever actually read through the book of Jude. And for those that have read through the book of Jude, <clears throat> I would bet also that it's been a while unless you read it because I asked you to uh, this week. <clears throat> so it's probably been a while since you've read Jude. It's like one of those minor prophets that most people don't ever read, like Obadiah or Joel. Uh, and it's been a while since we've been in a book like this. And yet, what a privilege it is to spend time in Jude this week, um, especially for me as I prepared the sermon. This book is really about holiness and calling us to holiness and to Jesus. And so it was very convicting to me. I, I had a great sense of my sin uh, this week. And since it's often overlooked, there are a few things to know about Jude. Uh, it's one of the seven general epistles. It's written by Jude, which, uh, who was the brother of James, who was the brother of Jesus. And uh, Jude would have been an influential, uh, influential member of the early church, and he would have, of course, been a witness to Jesus's life, his death, his resurrection, his ministry, and all of that. And it's a general epistle 
because it's not written to a specific person or church in mind like First and Second Peter were. Uh, rather, it's simply addressed to Christians, or as Jude calls them in verse 1, those who are called beloved in God, the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. And the reason why we've grouped uh, Jude with First and Second Peter in this particular sermon series and not some other sermon series is because it deals with many of the same topics that First and Second Peter deals with, particularly Second Peter. Uh, namely false teachers and perseverance in the face of difficult times with all of that in the context of judgment, which we have been talking about the last couple of weeks. And if you look with me at verses 3 and 4, these verses are the theme verses of our book, laying out what Jude will be addressing. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. So, basically, Jude wants folks to contend for the faith against certain people who have crept into the church, pervert the gospel, and lead people astray. Sounds like the classic case of false teachers who are teaching something other than the gospel, which is why the ESV subheading is judgment on false teachers. But Jude is actually addressing a different kind of false teacher than what we're used to dealing with. The difference between false teachers that we find here in Jude and the false teachers that we heard about in 2 Peter 2 is that in Jude, we don't actually find Jude criticizing and condemning these false teachers for doctrinal error. He's not condemning them for heresy. So 2 Peter 2 was concerned with the destructive heresies that false teachers were secretly bringing in. But that's not the case here in Jude. Rather, the false teaching is one of immorality and ungodliness rather than heresy. Now, what do I mean by this false teaching is one of immorality and ungodliness rather than heresy? Well, Jude explains this in, explains what's going on in verses 5 to 7. Here he gives three examples from the Old Testament. In each of these cases, the folks under judgment knew their doctrine. They knew what to believe. They had godly examples in each case, and yet they willingly chose sinfulness and their own desires. So look with me at these verses, verses 5 to 7. The first example is of the generation that was delivered out of Egypt during the Exodus. They had seen the mighty works of God on their behalf through the plagues, through the crossing of the Red Sea, the giving of the law at Mount Sinai, which burned with fire and smoke. I mean, if you want to see the glory of God, there it is, right? Um, The giving of manna each day, the giving of water from the rock, and a whole host of other things as they journeyed from Egypt to the promised land. And yet, when they got there and they scouted out the land, what did they do? They were afraid of the powerful walls and the strength and the height and the size of the folks that were living there. And they turned from the Lord in unbelief and sinfulness, refusing to enter into the promised land and wishing to return to Egypt. The second example is of angels who did not stay within their own position of authority. 
This likely refers to Genesis 6, where angels took up human wives for the sake of satisfying their own lustfulness. And so these angels certainly knew their doctrine. They had had a a view of the glory of God that we can only dream of until we are reunited with him in resurrection life. So they know what's going on. They just choose to turn away from the Lord. And so they fall into ungodliness and immorality. And the third example is of Sodom and Gomorrah. These these cities have been symbols of immorality, perversion, and ungodliness throughout history. And yet they had godly examples in their midst of Lot and of Abram, who would later be named Abraham, to show them godliness, to to call them to repentance. And yet they persist in their ungodliness. In each of these cases, the condemnation isn't for doctrinal error, but for ungodly behavior. The issue isn't what they know, but what they do. And in verse 8, Jude connects the false teachers of his day to these ungodly examples of the Old Testament. And essentially, Jude is saying this, holiness and obedience matter. Willfully living in sin is to teach sinfulness to those around you who are watching you. And for each of us, and each of us instinctively understands the power of teaching by example. Each of us has learned by the example of others. Maybe you've been through a training seminar someplace at at work, uh, only to hear after the training seminar from your coworkers, oh, don't listen to that. That's not the way that you do it. This is the way that you do it, right? To learn from the example uh, from your coworkers. Or maybe you can recall those training montages in World War II movies where the grizzled combat veteran shows the green recruits how to actually fight the enemy. The true teacher is the one that you watch. In the same way, we often learn as much about the faith by watching other Christians live out the faith as we do from the formal teaching of the church. All those Sunday school lessons, youth group talks, and yes, sermons often don't have as much impact on our faith as the important people in our life, in our lives do. After all, who actually remembers doctrine and theology in the moment of testing? No, we remember the examples of others, the example of our spiritual role models. People, our parents, our mentors, our coaches, our pastors, our friends, people have a tremendous impact on our lives and our faith. And it's not usually through the content of their, of their doctrine but rather through the model of their lives. And that's not to say that doctrine isn't important. Doctrine absolutely is important. But our conduct, the way in which we live our lives, is just as vital. In the, we in the PCA, in the Reformed world, make much of our doctrinal purity, as we should. But we also need to make much of our lived holiness, personal obedience, faithfulness, and willingness to repent. And that last one, the willingness to repent, is often one that we don't see. How many of you, as you grew up, had great examples of people repenting in your lives? I would hazard that you didn't see a lot of repentance modeled for you. And why is that? It's because we're great at covering up our sinfulness. Repentance is often, like, embarrassing, right? 
because it shows and reveals our sinfulness. It makes us vulnerable to criticism from other people. And so what do we do? We repent privately. But that does everyone else a disservice because we need examples of godly men and women receiving godly admonishment and then openly and joyfully repenting. And why? Why do we need to see repentance out in the open? Not only for accountability's sake, but because that's how we learn. That's how we learn true godliness. That's how we learn godly repentance. And the opposite is true too. We can learn that some sins aren't that big of a deal. We can learn that a little bit of lust, a little bit of pride, a little bit of socially acceptable cynicism and unkindness is just fine. Nothing to get too bent out of shape over. Instead of learning the importance of holiness, we learn how to cut corners and presume upon the grace and mercy of our Lord, just like the false teachers did back then. And the three examples from the Old Testament did too. And at the core of it all is a foundational commitment to ourselves. That's what drives us to keep things private. That's what drives us to cut corners. That's what drives us to protect our sins. It's a foundational commitment to ourselves. Look at the ungodliness that these false prophets are accused of in verse 8. Relying on their dreams which is just another way of saying that they don't submit to Scripture, but follow their own counsel, their own ideas, and their own feelings. How often feelings trump everything in, our day, in this day and age. What about defile the flesh? This points to the lustfulness, perversion, and sexual immorality that has really infected humanity since the fall. This is nothing new. What about reject authority? Well, that's just about just all about wanting control over our own lives. You can't tell me what to do. How many of you children have said that to your parents? I said that to my parents when I was uh, a youngin. I sometimes say that to my parents now. You can't tell me what to do. What about blaspheme the glorious ones? Which is basically to say that we can do what we want without consequences. Do you see how all these things are about the self? It's all about our wisdom, our desires, our fulfillment, our control, our glory. And we do this almost instinctively, as verse 10 puts it. This is the human condition that we are by our very nature, children of wrath, dead in our sins, and rebellious against God. Why? Because we want to be him. That was the first sin in the garden. We want to be like God to be on his level, to be peers, but we're not. We want sin at our very core. We want ungodliness and unholiness. But there is a contrast made in verse 9. Here the archangel Michael is set up as one who does not presume to act upon his own strength, power, authority, and glory, but rather he turns to God's. Jude here is uh, drawing from a well-known, well, well-known back then, piece of apocryphal literature called The Assumption of Moses. And the meaning is clear. Nothing justifies overstepping your rightful place. The archangel Michael has an, un, an, an amazing, uh, sort of unimaginable amount of glory, power, and authority. When we see um, angels arrive on the scene in the scriptures, 
they are often mistaken for the glory of God. That's how glorious and amazing that they are. And so Michael has, could just sort of be like, look, look at me. I'm the archangel. Listen to what I'm saying. Because he has a measure of authority and glory all of his own. The temptation would be for Michael to rely on his own strength as he fights the powers of darkness. But, and what would really be wrong with that, right? He's got it. Why not use it? But the reason is because Michael understands that everything that he has been given is from God. Everything that is his is from the Lord. And so the true source of authority is the Lord, and so he merely rests in the Lord, content to let the true power win the battle for him. Well, what's the point of the contrast? Be like Michael? Well, maybe, but probably not it's much more likely that Jude is trying to remind Christians that the faith isn't about you at all. The faith isn't about us. And this is worth saying, the kingdom of God is not about you, it is not about me. It is not even about what we receive from God. It isn't about your eternal life or really you at all. Even the church isn't about you. Rather, it's about glorifying and enjoying God. That's the chief end of man. And the chief end of man really isn't focused on man at all. It's focused on God and what he has done and his worthiness and his glory. Even the enjoying parts, which seem to be about us, place the focus on God, the delight of our being rather than the fact that we have delight. What are we delighting in? versus the fact that we have delight in of itself. You see, the gospel delivers us from a self-centered point of view. That's one of the issues of the Pharisees and the chief priests. It's all about their goals, their power, their status, their vision of God's kingdom. It really isn't about God at all for them and often for us. But rather, Jesus pulls the focus to the only rightful place, which is himself. Think about it. At the very center of Christianity is Christ himself. While our salvation motivated Jesus to come and die, our salvation is still focused on him and what he has done, not on what we get from him. Everything that we receive is ours because we are united to Christ. Everything is his, not ours, but his first and foremost. It's his victory, his sacrifice, his resurrection life that we then receive in our union with him. We're just benefiting from his righteousness, his resurrection life, his position as the son of God. And so really everything is about him. It's him, not us. But in our sinfulness, we're blinded to all of that. And that sinfulness leads us to destruction as we carry out our sinful instincts. As sinners, we don't want God. Being true to a sinner's heart is to reject God like, an, like the unbelieving generation in the desert, the angels who fell and Sodom and Gomorrah. And if those three Old Testament examples weren't enough to convince you of your self-centered ways, Jude gives us three more in verse 11. Here, Jude names three more Old Testament figures and in each case gives us a window into our own sinful selfishness. First, he names Cain. You remember Cain as 
Adam and Eve's son who became a murderer by killing his brother Abel. And what precipitated that murder? Well, Abel's sacrifice was, uh, to the Lord was accepted and Cain's was not. And it's quite clear that Cain had known that the Lord required a blood sacrifice since the Lord dinged him for bringing veggies and fruits. But the question is why? Why did Cain bring something that he knew that the Lord would not accept? Because it was convenient. Remember, Cain was the worker of the ground and Abel was the keeper of the sheep. And so what Cain should have done was he should have taken some of his produce and traded with his brother Abel for a lamb that he might then slaughter and then sacrifice. But that would have been work. That would, have been, that would have meant that I would have had to talk to my brother. I'd have had to get a sheep, slaughter it, do the whole sacrifice. That, that's like wildly inconvenient. And so I'm just going to bring what I've got. The Lord, the Lord has given this to me, so I should just give it back to him, right? But that kind of thinking that focuses on my convenience isn't what the Lord asks for. And it puts the focus on me instead of what the Lord wants, what I want instead of what the Lord wants. And so he approaches the Lord in his worship wrongly. Why? Because of his own selfish desire for convenience. Do you see how Cain was more concerned with himself than with God? And then the second example was Balaam. This was the prophet of God who, uh, Balaam was actually a prophet of God, and he spoke God's words truly. But when the king of Moab offered him a lot of money, Balaam wavered a little bit in his conviction. He was sorely tempted to please the Moabite king because it would have been financially profitable for him. And so God had to send an angel and a talking donkey to set Balaam straight. And Jude's point in this is that these false teachers who embrace ungodliness do so because it gains them much. It is profitable. Maybe it's fame or money or power or influence or the fulfillment of their lustful desires. How many leaders in the church have been caught up in scandals because they wanted more and more for themselves? Maybe that describes you a little bit. Maybe it describes me a little bit. This this one is the one that gets me a lot. That it's profitable. It's fulfilling. And then the last example is Korah's rebellion. Korah was a cousin of uh, Moses and Aaron. And while they were in the desert, he got a little miffed because he didn't get chosen to be a priest. And so, because he didn't get chosen to be one of the cool kids, he incited a significant rebellion against Moses and Aaron that ended up costing the lives of him his family, two other families, and 250 men. But here the temptation is to make things about you because it's popular. Think about how many agreed with Korah and followed him because he had a message that exalted the individual. Listen to Numbers 16.3. They assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said to them, you have gone too far. For, in all, for all in the, cre- in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? The accusation doesn't sound so bad. This is God's people, Korah is talking about after all. Why should Moses and Aaron be special? 
Aren't we all equals in the Lord's covenant? I'm just as important as you. Isn't it a liberating feeling to go up against your leaders and to put them in their place? Empowering, isn't it? But what they forgot was Numbers 12, four chapters earlier when Miriam and Aaron opposed Moses too. There, God made it pretty clear that Moses was different. Listen, listen closely. And he said, hear my words. This is the Lord speaking. Hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak to him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth clearly and not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he departed. And Miriam contracted leprosy. They should have maybe remembered that before they you know, opened their mouths. And in each of these three examples of Cain, Balaam, and Korah, we can see that, again, the issue isn't doctrine but rather an ungodly selfishness that leads to sin. They were drawn to convenience, profitability, and popularity. And for us, these ungodly temptations are still there. Where do we see convenience, profitability, and popularity in our own lives? Well, for me, sometimes the temptation is, for convenience sake, maybe it's more convenient to not come to church. The kids are slow, they're whining, I'm tired, right? It's a massive effort to get there and then to sit while managing to try to control your children often means that you miss half of the sermon because you're trying to sort of wrangle children. It's inconvenient sometimes to come to church. And the temptation is there. Even for your pastor, (laughs) the temptation is there. It's easier to just stay home. Or maybe it's compromising your giving because you've got your eye on a new van, like I do. I would love a van. That would be awesome. Or a new phone. Or a new whatever. How profitable it is to be like, "Eh, you know, maybe like 8% this week instead of 10. Maybe it's keeping your mouth shut because the truth of the gospel can be divisive and more maybe softening the truth to sinners because you don't want to offend them because it's not popular, because it's offensive. These small compromises teach those around us that at the end of the day, you are the most important person in your life. What matters is your comfort, your desires, your convenience, your reputation. It's the little things that'll get you. But these compromises lead us into judgment and disaster. The promises of these selfish compromises are empty. They are hidden reefs that that wreck you despite promising an easy passage. They promise to take care of you, but instead just take from you. They don't quench your thirst, and they bear no fruit. But it's worse than just being empty promises that don't deliver. Our Our selfish ungodliness leads to judgment. Think about those Old Testament examples. They were cursed, held in bondage, destroyed, condemned, and swallowed up by the earth. Judgment is coming for the ungodly. Judgment is coming for those who do not live in holiness. Even the uninspired writer like Enoch, even an uninspired writer like Enoch, 
who wrote a whole bunch of apocryphal literature, knows that, un, that judgment is coming for the ungodly. How many times do we hear the word ungodly in just verse 15 alone? Behold, the Lord comes with tens, ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. And so what's the long and the short of this? Again, holiness matters. Living righteously matters to God. We often point to grace and forgiveness of the grace and forgiveness of the gospel and at the same time shy away from calling you to live in obedience because we're afraid of preaching a works righteousness. But the gospel makes us righteous and we should live like it. Friends, it is not wrong for me to say that we must live righteously. The gospel doesn't have a category for redeemed sinners to continue to live willfully and blatantly in sin, to embrace ungodliness. Jesus didn't die that you and I might continue to be ungodly. No, he died that you might be saved, that you might be made holy. True faith always produces the fruit of a repentance that leads to increasing holiness. Always. Sure, you'll sin. Sure, you might struggle with that sin for a season or even for a long time. But true faith means a life of repentance. A life that puts to death the sins of the flesh and the self. And so the question is, do you live a life of repentance? Do you see a robust life of holiness, or do you embrace your sin? Do you rationalize your sin and teach through your unrepentance that holiness is optional? Are you a Jude-type false teacher who says all the right things but lives hypocritically? This is what we're to contend against as the church, not just the overt heresies of, the, of heretics, but the subtle temptation to be about ourselves. And so how can the church persevere and remain faithful to the Lord? We're all sinners and we're drawn to these selfish temptations. We often teach ourselves to follow ungodly passions, as verse 18 puts it. So what's the answer? Well, unsurprisingly, it's to focus on Jesus, to remember that it's not about us, and so it must be about him. Look with me at verses 20 to 23. But you, beloved, Building yourselves up in your most holy faith and, and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by flesh. And so how are we to contend against the temptations of the flesh? How do we truly persevere in the faith? We do this by keeping ourselves in the love of God and by waiting for his mercy that leads to eternal life. But practically speaking, how do we keep ourselves in the love of God? How do we persevere as we wait? We do so by availing ourselves to the ordinary means of grace and by embodying Christ. There's nothing groundbreaking here. Building yourselves up in the faith and praying. That, what's interesting is that this is a corporate endeavor. You don't build yourself up individually. Rather, in Ephesians 4, 
Ephesians 4, we learn that we need each other for this. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow and so builds itself up in love. Surprise, you need the church to point you to Jesus, to righteousness and to the cross. You need brothers and sisters with their unique gifts to help you along the way. No one is an island. No one is so strong as to do this alone. And really, it's not about the strength of your faith at all anyways, because you were never meant to do this alone. Faith was never meant to be just between you and Jesus. And so you need others to point you to Jesus. And we see that in spades in verse 23. Have mercy on those who doubt. Doubts are commonplace. Remember, the, the people that we're having mercy on are folks in the church. And so the devil is the great deceiver and a great accuser. And doubts are really just an opportunity for you to have mercy and grace upon each other. They're an opportunity to turn your brothers and sisters in Christ away from their doubts to the shining assurance that they have in Christ Jesus. What about save those who are in the fire? This means that we are to call each other to account for our sinfulness. To not paste them to the wall for their faithlessness, for their sinfulness, but to call them to repentance. To remind them of the love that they already have in Christ Jesus. We sometimes can't see our own selfishness, our own sinfulness. And we can only rarely turn away from it ourselves. Sin, which so easily entangles is only overcome when godly men and women act like Christ towards each other, calling them to repentance, calling them to righteousness. Remember Matthew 18, where we call each other out for our sins. The purpose of that isn't to be like, you're a sinner, you stink. The purpose of that is to restore them, to bring them to repentance, to bring them back into the love of Christ. And so at the same time, this mercy that we are to show to each other also underscores the danger of ungodliness. Those cautionary tales are for you. Let me back up. Those cautionary tales that we get in the Old Testament, that's you, but for the grace of God. Let us hate the sin that binds us and love the sinner whom Christ has died for. And really, this is what Jude wants us to do. Have a holiness that calls us to be like Christ to one another, that we might become more like him. But in the end, we need more than just our church's accountability. We need more than just good brothers and sisters that know what we're going through and know how we sin to call us to account. We need more than that. We need Jesus to keep us. In the end, he is the only one who is able to keep us from stumbling. After all, he is the one who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And he will not fail to bring to completion the good work that he has begun in you. And so Jude is calling us to be like Jesus, holy and blameless, to exhibit Jesus to one another by having mercy and grace to each other while pointing to Jesus. And to rest in the fact that we have Jesus himself working in us to keep us and to sanctify us. 
Friends, just as we heard the word ungodly over and over and over again in that one verse, so it is we should hear the name of Jesus in every aspect of our life over and over again. Friends, let us live in holiness and avoid becoming like these false teachers who are about themselves and their own fulfillment. Let us be like the only God, our Savior Jesus Christ, to whom belongs all glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Let's pray. Father God, we confess that we come to you as sinners that embrace our sin. Father, we know that we often protect our sin. Father, we know that in our protection of our sin, in our embrace of that sin, we become like false teachers as we teach those around us that sin really isn't all that bad. Lord, deliver us from that. We know where false teaching leads, and it leads to destruction. But Lord, we know that we have been saved by you and by your grace. Remind us of the wonder of your gospel. Remind us the wonder of being not about ourselves, but about you. Lord, would our focus be upon the only one who is able to deliver us from stumbling, our Lord Jesus Christ. Fix our eyes upon him in this Thanksgiving season, in this Advent season as it comes up. Would you be the focus of our lives, we pray. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen.